Hello and welcome to this, the third, in the Conversations with Poets series. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Joe Shapcott. Joe's first collection of poetry, Electroplating the Baby, published over 20 years ago, immediately marked her out as a bold and original new voice. That book won the Commonwealth Poetry Prize for the best first collection. And a decade later, her third book, My Life Asleep, won the Forward Prize for best collection. And in addition, she's twice won the National Poetry Competition. During our conversation, we talk about her new collection of Mutability, published this summer, as well as taking a look back at some of her earlier work, including her Mad Cow sequence and her poetic response to German poet Rainer Maria Rilke's verse in French. As in all the programmes in this series, you'll be able to hear the poet read from her work throughout the course of our interview. This interview is in two parts, and I began this first part by asking Jo how easy she found it to decide that a poem was finished, or at least finished enough for it to be seen for the first time by other people. I'm I'm a, te- a complete terror at that. To the ex- I have to say that Faber has an exemplary editors, and on my latest book I worked with Matthew Hollis, who was not only a genius at it, but incredibly patient, to the extent where he had to come round my house and take the manuscript from me in order to get it at all, because I'm a terror at hoarding it and tinkering and never letting anyone see. That sort of answers the, the question I had about, you know, how, how you determine when a poem is finished. Is a, is a poem ever finished? Or years later, do you, do you sometimes still go back and think about making tiny changes? Or is it, it when it's in print, is that it cast in, in stone? No, I could tinker forever. But I think other things come into play. When when I look at poems I wrote a long time ago, say in my first book, it's odd because they, they appear to be poems written by someone else, in it, which in a way they were. And I can see in those poems horrible flaws, things I wouldn't do now or I'd do better now. But you have to have a certain amount of respect for that person because she could also do things I can't do now. There are other things about you know that youthful energy um, that's different. So, you know, it probably behoves one to steer a bit clear or be careful about editing things that there's a very long stretch of time involved in. Let me ask you to expand a little bit more on that than those things which you think the you of 20 years ago could do that you wouldn't do now, positive and, and negative, but also the poet that you've, you've grown into mm-hmm. since then. Can you reflect a bit on, on, the, on that? I'll try to reflect on that. The difficulty with your question is um, it's hard to put oneself under the microscope like that and it's something that other people can see better, the kind of development over time. And almost if, if you pursue it too microscopically yourself, it can be a little bit inhibiting. But I'll give it a go anyway with, with those provisos. I think I am technically better, for sure, than I was when I was beginning, but you'd expect that. Concerns change. So my latest book reflects a lot on mortality, which perhaps my younger self naturally enough would not have done. So thematically, that's a very big change. The the stretch is bigger now, I suppose, because you feel a little more assured. There's more that you can do and uh, bigger things that you can do. Mutability of mutability. There's something, there's something very arresting about that word and its permutations. Could you just reflect a little bit for me on, on it and, and its resonances for, for you? It's a lovely word, isn't it? It came into the collection 
through an unexpected route. Actually now, having put the collection together, I'm now looking a lot at Spencer, who of course is famous for mutability. But that's not the way mutability came into it. I bumped into the work of an artist called Helen Chadwick, who was making her work mainly in the 1980s and perhaps the early 90s. Uh, she died quite young in her early 40s in the early 1990s. And her work brought together just a fantastic uh, acknowledgement of the relationship between the organic and the inorganic, the body and the world, and united complete opposites wonderfully. So kind of um, hard science, uh, soft skin, all kinds of things. I mean, a, a good example of that would be a work which uh, entwines a piece of pig gut with beautiful golden hair around it. And the other thing to say about that is that she was a wonderful maker of things, a, a terrific craftswoman. So everything she made was very precise and beautiful. I bumped into this work at um, just the right time for all sorts of reasons. And her big exhibition in the Serpentine Gallery was called Of Mutability. And that was her theme and that became my theme too. Maybe I could ask you to read the, the title poem from the collection. Yeah. It's, worth, it's worth saying as well that um, in the acknowledgement to this book, I call her the presiding spirit and there are several poems which address her work directly or indirectly. She kind of leaps through like a little elf. <laughs> of mutability. Too many of the best cells in my body are itching, feeling jagged, turning raw in this spring chill. It's 2004, and I don't know a soul who doesn't feel small among the numbers, razor small. Look down these days to see your feet mistrust the pavement and your blood tests turn the doctor's expression grave. Look up to catch eclipses, gold leaf, comets, angels, chandeliers out of the corner of your eye. Join them if you like, learn astrophysics, or learn folk song, human sacrifice, mortality, flying, fishing, sex without touching much. Don't trouble, though, to head anywhere but the sky. Thank you. Looking back through your work, it seems that cells are things which crop up repeatedly, but nowhere more insistently, regularly than in this collection. It's always a very delicate question asking about, about autobiography, but in your acknowledgements, you kind of legitimate me perhaps to do that by, by um, thanking Hereford County Hospital. Uh, it, it's true to say that transformation has always been a preoccupation. And so I've focused on characters that can transform into other characters, uh, bodies that can transform into other animals. Um, I've also always been really interested in the boundaries between the self and the world, and no more so than at the kind of edges of the skin, and maybe at the very edge of the cell. So the cell is the centre of transformation. In this book, the transformation is slightly different. The transformation is into ill health or perhaps even death. There's quite a lot of meditation on mortality, though it's a strangely cheerful book, I should say. <laughs> and 
I guess the autobiographical link is the fact that I had breast cancer and was wonderfully treated by very skillful and artistic doctors in Hereford. But, but, but as you say, transformation it really is a theme which can be traced all the way back. And um, in, in your earlier collections, there are characters transformed into rhinoceroses or elephants or goats. But there's a very, very powerful poem, Thetis, in which you take a, a character from Greek mythology and work through the transformations which for her have terrible outcomes. What what back then did did looking at transformation enable you to do? What was what was it that particularly exercised your imagination about the, the powers of of language to work these transformations? I think for me it's it's part of the charge and the excitement of poems that you can inhabit other selves so completely or at least stretch yourself to incorporate these other selves. Living outside, just imagining anything. It's what poems can do. They can take you anywhere. And although we're in a highly technological age and are bombarded with fantastical things like video games and TV, all of which I love, I should say, I still think poems can take both the reader and the writer much, much further. And somehow that's always a kind of internal challenge I set myself is how far, how far out of the centre of myself can I go? You know, how, how far can I reach into that other sensibility or soul or that other part of the world? Where does the self end? I don't mm. know the answer. Mm. It's very interesting. And you're inter interested in the process because um, by coincidence, I was reading a book about, about Greek transformation myths just last week and, and speaking to an author. And it seemed that the higher up the pantheon you went, the more instantaneous the, trans the transition was. So Zeus was kind of in a flash would become a, a, a shower of golden coins or, or a bull or whatever. But there were these sort of li liminal characters, one of whom would be, would be Thetis, where, where the process took longer or was more, was more ambiguous. And I think it seemed to me that you were interested in in the transitional process, not just not just the ability to, to shift shape, but ha what happened uh, and what that meant to be between states and changing. I like that um, analysis very much. I think that's absolutely right, that it is, it's the borderland that's very, very interesting. Almost rather than being on either side of the border, it is the borderland that I like, that liminal place. You know, where does the self end? Where does the world begin? Talking about the cellular level, I mean, the cellular level tells us we don't know the answer to that. It's much more blurred than we think, that place where the skin blends into the atmosphere. Um, so I do like that. Geographically, I like that. I lived on the Welsh borders for a long time, and that I enjoyed very much, the kind of paradoxical strangeness. Borders often are strange places where people um, relish being both one thing and another and play with that a bit. You talked about finding more confidence in your technical accomplishments, and I thought that was sort of marvellously demonstrated in Night Flight from Muncaster, which is a transformation poem where you address the reader in the second person and kind of invoke this transformation. And I wondered if you could read that because it, it, it just seemed to me such a, such a, a brilliant piece of, um, of writing. Night Flight from Muncaster. Reader, you're an owl for this moment, your flower face a white scrawl in the dark, a feather frill. Feel a pair of flat cheeks grow, satellite dishes to funnel sound, not to transmit sweet hungry noises to ears set uneven for range. 
You'll hear best if you tilt and jerk your head, blast it towards the smallest rattle of dust. You're an owl from your raptor talons to your huge eyes, which sculpt a deep, narrow path through the night. Check how close together they've crept for depth perception. And feathers adapted for silence on the wing. And now you're flying as fast as slang, as quiet as the moment after a song. Below is a sandstone ravine where you harness updrafts, try out some height, then swoop low past the aerial walkway to disgorge a pellet for a child to find and keep for her project. Rare for a barn owl to fly to the seashore, but you want to feel and test every feather, enjoy the tug of wing muscles, stir your way through miles and miles of sheer air. That's how you find yourself at North Berwick, preening by the harbour, well back from thousands of seabirds on islands and rocks who live for clamour for the noise of the flock, so that even late at night your auriculars catch chat enough to block out the quiet. But up to this minute you've been learning how to read the silences of air, its meanings, currents and pressures. You can hear clouds creak, Droplets hiss. It seemed to me as a reader that you, you as a poet there were enjoying the power of flight. Although you were addressing the readers, it seemed like you were testing, you were testing your powers and finding that you could in language fly. I think using language to fly is a lovely way of pushing it. I think that's right. And that, that's what poems can do, can't they? And invoking the reader, I think, helps me as the writer feel that I'm bringing bringing people in on the flight and that makes it kind of doubly exciting. Can you though reconstruct how a poem like that was made because I imagine beneath the appearance of ease and flight and taking to the air is a great deal of of labour, trial and error and finding and weighing words and getting, getting things just the way you want them to be. The sound world of that poem is particularly important, of course important in all poems, but I think I was very aware of getting the sound right to make flight possible and also to reflect um, what I imagined uh, somehow was the owl's own quality of hearing. So the whole thing, I hope, is sonically hypersensitive. That seems to work to help me and I hope the reader get inside the owl skin, inside the owl feathers, but also to sort of launch out onto flight. And I, I took the owl through real places, so you get the sense of a long flight and, and a kind of perspective on the ground beneath that's sometimes closer, sometimes further away, and a kind of swooping feeling because the visual focus moves as well as the sonic focus moving. I know you've worked a lot with musicians, and I wondered if that if that had altered in some ways your your perception of of sound, the sound world of of your poetry. I was very very lucky to spend um, nearly ten years working at the Southbank Centre, and I worked a lot with musicians. My job was to devise education programs um, using the artists who were performing or composing. Um, not just musicians, actually, across all the art forms. But it meant that I got to talk a lot to composers and performers. And that was like a sort of 
separate super university education and particularly in attention to sound and I think changed me fundamentally in terms of how I hear, how I listen and how that translates into language. It'll never be the same again. Yeah. There's a poem I really love in the new collection called Shapcott's Variation on Schoenberg's, and I can't complete the title, I'm afraid, from memory, but I wondered if you might read that because that seemed to me to bring together the world of sound and the world of intellect and a very corporeal sense, and, and then it opens out to something beyond that. I've always been interested in how composers have a kind of greater freedom than perhaps we do as writers to incorporate the many layers of musical history into current work. And that can go quite deep. And they often have personal links because of their composition teachers, say, right back to Tchaikovsky. And many of their compositions will acknowledge uh, that they're, they're a variation on the theme of someone who wrote a theme on someone else. And that can stretch back too. And we tend not to do that or not so overtly. So I tried to do that, to pinch it for myself in this poem. Shapcott's variation on Schoenberg's orchestration of Bach's Prelude and Fugue in E-flat major, St. Anne. Where does it come from, this passion for layers? I could eat the lexicon, breathe whole fugues in German and Latin, rub notes on my skin to make the paws sing. I love it like this, when I lose touch with who's the voices, who's the fingers on the bow, the pen, whose mouth the noise belongs to in the end. Numbers make me tremble in spring. I want to counterpoint them until I careen off the edge of the world, disputing with God himself about the number seven. Thank you. Something that's important for me in that poem, and I think in quite a, a number of my poems, is the notion that ideas are emotional, that one can be as passionate about a thought as uh, a person and that there's no reason why poems can't express that. And I think we feel a little bit inhibited about ideas and thought and that kind of visceral excitement about what minds can do. I like the word disputing in, at the end of the poem. I underlined that in my copy. Was I right to underline that, do you think? Rather, you didn't choose to say discussing or any other sort of more neutral verb. You went for disputing. I like that. I like the idea of disputing because it sounds... Um, as if there's, an, there's, there's not agreement, there's a kind of chain of thought and counter-thought, but it doesn't feel like a war. Mm. It feels like something that might even be quite fun. Mm. I lo I, it's got an, an echo of sort of disputatio in Latin, which goes back to the lexicons, I thought, of some, some kind of intellectual engagement with God. Precisely, right. precisely so. And I, I had a kind of little thought experiment with myself in that poem about the gender of God. I'm quite unhappy that God in the poem is a man, but if I had transformed God into a woman, it would have made a point in the poem that wasn't the main point. And I didn't know how to express a genderless God, which I think is probably what I would like. So for the moment, until I can think of the pronoun for the genderless God, God becomes a man or a masculine at least in the poem. Now, another entity whose gender you play with in the collection, if play with is the right word, is death. And there's a very nicely counterweighted poem where you 
well, I, I went paraphrased. Tell, tell me, tell me about what you were, what you were getting at there. The, the poem, The Deaths, is one of those poems which crept up on me and frightens me every time I read it. And I can't say everything about where it came from because I don't know. One of the clear originators, though, deep down, is Emily Dickinson. I mean, in, in the poem, there's a bee buzz of an afternoon, which I think flicks me straight to Emily Dickinson's wonderful poem, I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died. And I've always loved the audacity of that poem, that the consciousness somehow remains after death. Maybe, again, relating to that kind of borderland that interests me so much. What is the difference between life and death? Can we tell? And where are we when we're neither one thing or the other? The poem is split into the notion of a masculine death and a feminine death. And that's probably about all I can mm. tell you. Interestingly, it works differently on the page from when you hear it, doesn't it? Because when you see it on the page, it is counterbalanced between two parts. But when you when you read it aloud at, at readings, it, it will have a different it will have a different kind of twist in its tail, I suppose. I think that's right. And I find myself leaving quite a big pause after the first section, which is the masculine death. Because in a sense that poem is over and people think it's over, but then it starts again. Mm. And perhaps it's even more frightening in its female manifestation, mm. more unexpected. Mm. The deaths. I thought I knew my death. I thought he would announce himself with all the little creaks and groans you hear of, that we'd get friendly and walk our walk of two drunkards, with him chattering inside me about lumps and arteries and his gift of pain, which would be too big to wrap properly, that some way into our courtship he'd give me the look and I'd implode like a ripe mango. I thought I knew my death, so when, after a bee buzz of an afternoon, the rain started and the fine hairs rose on my neck and the long hairs tugged my scalp and my mouth stank of seaweed and a tingle ran round my wrists, I didn't recognise her. She lit a green flame over my head and even then I didn't get it. She threw me yards back, traced her filigree red cartoons on my palms until I was gone and still I didn't know. That was Jo Shapcott reading The Deaths from her latest collection of Mutability. This interview continues in the second part in which I talk to Jo about her Rilke poems and the Mad Cow persona and you'll also be able to hear her read some more pieces from her new collection. I hope you'll want to continue listening. But for the moment, thank you for listening thus far, and goodbye.